We'll be in Acts chapter 12 today, looking at verses 1 through verse 19. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Church family, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayers for him were made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Savior, our God, you most holy, most righteous, most just, we come today, Lord, and we ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace to be given to us today as we read, as we study your word. I pray as we hear of this great and miraculous story of the rescue of Peter, of the care that you show for your church, even in the midst of persecution, that we might be encouraged today, Lord. But also, Lord, not only that we might be encouraged, but that we might be challenged. Lord, that we might be challenged and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might be molded 
into the image of Christ with one accord, with one another. Lord, I pray that you would have your way today with your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember back whenever I was in uh, middle school and grade school and I played baseball. It's my favorite sport to play. I love playing baseball. And the position that I had the privilege of playing uh, was pitcher. I did always enjoy pitching. It's kind of the, uh, the thing every kid wants to do to get the pitch from the mound. It's sort of the, the main event as far as defense goes on the baseball field. One of the things that, that happened to me, though, is I pitched. And I pitched often. I was a starter, so I would pitch uh, sometimes multiple games in a row. I did a lot of practice uh, up on the mound. And one of the things that I noticed, and, and you'll know this if you've ever had to wear cleats, if you've ever played any sports, you'll know that cleats are not very comfortable. Uh, not very comfortable at all. And in fact, uh, after hours and hours in cleats, you will begin to develop blisters and, uh, and calluses in different places. And as a pitcher, one of the things that I noticed especially to be true uh, was that the way my foot would, would meet the rubber, and every time I would throw, it would push off from the rubber in the same way. Over the course of a baseball season, I would develop these huge calluses on the sides of my feet, one on either side of my feet up near my toes, and they would just, they would just grow and grow and grow throughout the season as over and over again, I would rotate my foot on the, the mound the same way from pitching pitch after pitch. Every pitch I threw would help to grow those calluses. Because as you know, those things start as blisters, right? Uh, but uh, uh, to quote the movie Holes, everything turns to callus eventually. Uh, enough time given and enough repetition given to, to these same motions and calluses will begin to form. And, and over the course of a season, I would end up with these huge calluses that would then, after the season was over, would, would just sort of flake off over time and I'd have exposed raw skin underneath. Uh, and, and we see sort of how calluses, we understand how calluses form. Actually, one of the most fascinating ways that calluses form uh, is through a process and, and a sort of condition that is known among gamers as Nintendo thumb or gamer's thumb. I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but this is a real thing where people who play video games all the time, who spend hours and hours and hours playing video games, will develop what's called Nintendo thumb or gamer's thumb, which is where they will end up with great big calluses on the sides of their thumbs where they press the controllers over and over and over again. And in fact, it gets even worse than that at times. Uh, people who are prone to playing video games over and over and over again uh, will end up with like uh, issues with their tendons and their muscles and their thumbs and, and all sorts of things that can develop uh, from these things. So much so, this is just interesting to me, that there are, there are gaming sleeves and like tape and gloves and equipment specifically for gamers to wear to avoid injury. <laughs> that's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of funny to me, but to you gamers out there, I apologize if that's offensive to you, but that's funny. Um, but we see what, what this sort of shows us, and when we understand how calluses form, how they work, calluses form by repetition, right? By pressing, by using our, our muscles or, or throwing or, or doing whatever it is over and over and over again. Repetition is what forms calluses, it's force and repetition. We begin to realize that you can tell a lot by a pers- about a person by calluses. Someone who, who saw my feet whenever I was playing baseball, once they heard the explanation, would understand, wow, you've thrown a lot of baseballs. You've pitched a lot of pitches. You really enjoy pitching. You were really committed to pitching. And we see calluses on people's thumbs. And you're going to look for them in the grocery line now, I'm sure. 
you see calluses on people's thumbs, you can deduce that that person plays a lot of video games, that they are committed to gaming, that they enjoy playing video games. What we see is that calluses, calluses show us in a real life way where our interests lie. They expose our desires. They, they show outwardly what it is that we're committed to. People with calluses on their thumbs are, are, have, have deep interests and are committed to gaming on their feet, maybe to athletics and other ways. They might have calluses on their elbows or hands due to the work that they do or hobbies or interests. But calluses are an outward display, a demonstration of where a person's commitments lie, what their interests are. And so I, I propose to you, and, and the question I want us to consider today is this. If the early church were to form calluses, a sort of spiritual callus, if you will, where would those calluses have been? What is it that the church, that was, that the church in the early church of Acts was committed to that would have over time and repetition and commitment to these things developed these sorts of spiritual calluses? In other words, what was the early church about? What were they doing? What were they committed to, especially in the face of persecution? That's the question I want us to consider today as we look at this story here in Acts as this sort of aside. You know, we were in Antioch last week seeing the, the establishment of the church in Antioch. And now Luke has, has transported us by the power of, of writing back to Jerusalem to see this story of Peter's rescue and the persecution of the church. And so I want us to look at this story today and ask ourselves this question. What is it that the early church was committed to? Where would those spiritual calluses have formed on the early church? I want us to do so by looking closely at this story and considering. One of the first things we see in this story, and if you're taking notes, this will be point number one, is that this story shows for us the wickedness of earthly rulers. The wickedness of earthly rulers. Rulers. Now, certainly we know that not every ruler that has come to power through the course of human history has been a, a great wicked ruler like many that we see in the scriptures. There have been some good rulers, there have been some good kings, some good authorities, or some that have done good. But we also know that the places of highest authority are oftentimes the places where abuse is going to be most prone, most of a temptation, and where it's going to feel the greatest impact. And we see that that is true of the church in Acts as they are dealing with wickedness of the rulers in the highest places. They see it from their king, from the king known as Herod here in our text. As he is increasing persecution to the church, we see persecution increase in one particular way, a way that we have yet to see, yet to see and that is that the apostles are now being targeted. You remember the strategy of Saul, whenever he was persecuting the church, he didn't really go after the apostles. His strategy was to do what? It was to go from house to house, arresting the believers, persecuting them on a very grassroots level, causing a sort of chaos, causing a sort of fear among the people, even at the lowest levels. That was one strategy. That was the strategy used by Paul. But by and large, he avoided coming after the apostles. What we see now is that this ruler, this man Herod, has now taken it to another level and has decided to take it upon himself to strategize in order to take out the leaders of the church. And we are met at the very beginning of our text with the sad news that he has killed James, the brother of John, by the sword. That is, he has beheaded him. 
Now, this man, his name's Herod, but he is not to be confused with the Herod that, that we see back when Jesus was born, the Herod who, who murdered millions of infant boys when he heard of this Messiah, this king that had been born. It was actually the grandson of that Herod, of Herod the Great. This was Herod Agrippa, or Agrippa I. As we know, there's another Agrippa that will come later. And yet, even though he was not Herod the Great, he did not necessarily execute all of these infant boys, he did indeed carry on the legacy of his grandfather, one of tyranny, one of wickedness, as he now began to persecute the church in this severe, in this heavy way as he, was began, as he began targeting the apostles. Likely, it was, uh, it was possible that this persecution intensified, that it got worse at this time because of what had recently been happening in the church. You know, largely, what, what had been known as, as the way, what the church was up to this point, was largely Jewish. It was considered by most to be a Jewish sect, but as we have seen in the past two chapters, no longer is that the case. But the church is now made up of both Jews and Gentiles, as the gospel has now come to all people, including the Gentiles. This probably would have been very distasteful to the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders. But we realize quickly that the motivation of Herod Agrippa, the motivation to persecute the church, to kill the apostles, is not one rooted in some sort of religious zeal. In fact, when, the, when historians talk about the, the sort of upbringing that Agrippa had, he was raised in a Roman context. He was, he was raised largely with Roman royalty. And so lo- really his, his commitments were not really that much to the Jewish religion. His commitments were to power. His commitments were to his authority and to tyranny. We see in verse 3 that it was not a, a zeal for Jewish tradition that led him to persecute the church. But what we see in verse 3 is that he saw it pleased the Jews. We see that what really drove Herod Agrippa to persecute the church was the fact that he was desperate to please the people. He was desperate to maintain his power. And the way he saw that he could do that, the way he could stay in good standing with the Jews was to persecute the people the Jews hated. And that is the church. This man, this ruler, one who was supposed to be a a servant of God to bear the sword and not in vain was now persecuting the people of God for the sake of his own power, for the sake of pleasing the people. It is always a danger to be a people pleaser, isn't it? I know that this is a serious danger for myself. I am prone to this this sin of fearing man over God, but we know full well where the end of these things lead. We will always have to deal with the struggle of living in a fallen world and with corrupt and wicked leaders such as Herod. But as Christians, we have hope though, don't we? Even as we face the the tyranny of our rulers, the tyranny of kings and czars and presidents, we know that one day the evil doer will be punished and those who fear the Lord will be rewarded. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us this. You wouldn't think to find much hope in Ecclesiastes, would you? All is vanity, right? Vanity of vanities, that's what the author says. And yet we see good news even in Ecclesiastes 12, 8, 12 through 13, where the author says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, that's something we can relate to, isn't it? We lament that evil seems to be rewarded and prosper in this life. But he says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. He goes on in verse 13 to say, 
but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. We see this reality come true even for Herod Agrippa. As we're not going to get deep into it in, in today's sermon, but the text right after the one we're looking at today tells of his downfall and his death. You see, we're going to have to deal with wicked, evil rulers in the world. But we can do so knowing that we have hope, that we have security, that we have a foundation on the fact that our God is good and he is for his people and those who fear him. This was a great insight to the church and one that gave them great peace, great motivation to continue in what they were doing. It was a great peace to them because they believed in the power and the providence of God. This is point number two. The power and providence of God. It is on such great display here in our passage today, isn't it? As we get to this story of Peter, after, after James has just been executed, he's been beheaded, and King Herod Agrippa said, oh, look, that pleased the people. I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna go get John, and he's next. And so he takes John, but because it was the, the day of unleavened bread, because it was the Passover, and Jewish law, Jewish tradition, forbid anyone to be uh, executed, anyone to be, have their sentence carried out during the Passover. Not that Herod Agrippa was all concerned about the Passover, but he was concerned about what the people would think. He said, let's withhold it. Let's put him in prison and hold him there until the Passover is gone. And so fearful was King Herod Agrippa that this man was going to escape that he put him under, what does the text say? 16 guards. It says that he put him in prison under four squads of soldiers. That is four groups of four soldiers to guard this one man, John. It's kind of almost hysterical, the overkill that he goes to to keep John in prison. But you know, he's probably thinking about all the previous times when these Christians have been put in prison and somehow escaped. These Christians, even sometimes when they are killed, even that doesn't do it as we saw with Jesus. He was killed, his tomb was guarded, didn't matter. And so he puts 16 soldiers on guard to watch him, taking rotations four at a time to guard him. We see Peter is found guarded between two soldiers, one on each side, bound by their arms, and then two more placed outside, probably working in about three or four hour rotations to continually have fresh guard on Peter at all times. One thing that's amazing to see, though, and, and indeed, commentators have noted sort of the, the humor found in this text. It's unmistakable. One of the amazing things about this, this event is that when we find Peter here in chains and the angel comes in to find him, what is Peter doing? He's sound asleep. Sound asleep. This is like, like old school Peter who was told, come out of the boat and come to me. And he just jumps out of the boat. This is a Peter who, who is seems to be completely without fear in the face of danger. This is a Peter who has a firm and deep resolve in the character of his God and Savior. This is a, a man who has a peace that surpasses all understanding. I saw a meme recently of, of two men sitting on a park bench, uh, and there was, it was like in the middle of a flood. The floodwaters were like up to their chest as they're sitting on this park bench and just big smiles on their faces looking out into the horizon. And it said, this is what it looks like to have peace that surpasses all understanding. 
just chilling in the midst of rising waters, right? A peace that, that makes people outside go, what on earth? Remember, James had just been killed. And Peter knew full well what was about to come to him when the Passover was over, and yet here he was sleeping. Sleeping so deeply that even when this angel appeared and the glory of the Lord shone and filled the room, brightened up the whole room, Peter kept sleeping. It wasn't until the angel punched him in his ribs that he finally came to. And even then, did he really come to? I mean, he's kind of out of it, right? Thinking this is a vision. He's just kind of going, through. all right, another vision, I guess. Where's the sheep going to come down? I'll follow this angel. Where are we going, right? Peter experienced the most amazing thing and was barely aware of it. Peter was walking through, walking right past these guards. We don't know how. We don't know what was going on. Then when these two guards who were right next to him, the chains fell off and, and all this light is shining around them and this angel's there. We have no idea where they just put down in a, in a really deep, hard sleep. Were they just ignorant to what was going on? We don't know. All we know is that it was a miracle, that it was miraculous, that it was the work of the power and providence of God to bring Peter out of this prison. And he can't even believe it. He's walking through, passing these guards, and then all of a sudden the main gate just opens up of its own accord. On its own, it just swings open. And Peter walks out. And then he turns to the angel to be like, okay, what do you have to explain? What? He's gone. And it hits Peter what has just happened to him. The power and the providence of God strikes him immediately in that place, and he is amazed. The situation was so amazing that Peter didn't even think it was happening. He thought it was a dream. Even though we start this chapter with the martyrdom of the first apostle, we still see the sovereignty of God at work. Not just at work in the escape, the rescue of Peter, but throughout the whole chapter. F.F. Bruce writes about this passage. He says, The narrative bears witness to the delivering grace of God and to the power of believing prayer. That James should die while Peter should escape is a mystery of divine providence, which has been repeated countless times in the history of the people of God. By faith, says the writer to the Hebrews, some escaped the edge of the sword. By faith, others were killed with the sword, end quote. F.F. Brutes writes for us about the mystery of God's sovereignty. We often are left scratching our heads, wondering at God's providence, going, God, why would you let James die? Why is it that you would save Peter, but you didn't save James? Did you not love James? Did you not care for James? Was he of less value? By no means. The sovereignty of God, the goodness of God and salvation in salvation and his providence means that all that happens in this passage is for the glory of God and is right and is good. God's sovereignty is on display through the whole thing. We think about the fact that that this seems tragic, that James was killed. But you want to know one person who is absolutely not mourning the death of James, who is absolutely not wondering why God would do this? That's James. At this moment, James is now in the very presence of God, filled with a fullness of joy, being in the presence of a Savior, Jesus Christ. He is by no means saddened by his martyrdom or by his death. We need to remember, even when we consider 
the sovereignty of God and the death of believers, the death of loved ones who know the Lord, it is easy for us to lose sight of the sovereignty of God and ask, God, why would this happen? How could you let this person die at such a young age, this one who was, who was so filled with the Spirit, this one who was so committed to your service, how could they be taken? But never forget where that person is now. There is no lament in their heart. There is no sorrow in their soul, but fullness of joy. Not only that, we must never underestimate the purposes of the Lord, even in terribly sad moments like this, the death of James. For consider what God can do as he uses the martyrdom of believers. This is a a story not found in scripture, but one found in church history. And you can take it with a grain of salt. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But church history tells us that when James was beheaded, his testimony was so great that even the guard who was tasked with guarding him through this process was so taken aback by his faithfulness, so taken aback by the testimony of this man that even he came to faith in Christ through his testimony and was beheaded right next to James. I like to believe that that's the case. I like to believe that that's the case because I've heard stories like this. We know stories of people who have died for the sake of the gospel and the impact that that has led to. For that is how God enjoys working for his good pleasure, even to use the most sorrowful, sad moments in our life to accomplish his will and to bring himself glory. Third and final point, we see from this passage the need for prayer. Verse five is presented for us as a sort of side-by-side display. We see this great line. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We see this as a sort of, uh, on one hand, Peter was being held in prison. The power of man was on display, holding Peter, persecuting him. And yet, but on the other hand, the power of God is at work as the people are praying to the Lord for Peter. We know, as the book of James tells us, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power. We read also in 1 John 5, Verse 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Or consider what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and he hears and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We see a sort of contrast of powers here in this text. The power of Herod Agrippa to hold Peter captive, to put his guards around him, to persecute him and imprison him. And we see the power of God on display through prayer. Again, we don't have to read much farther to see where the end of those two things come. Who's going to win the victory in this story? We know the end of the story. Well, it seemed as though the church was powerless in this situation. We know that those who belong to the Lord are never powerless in the face of opposition. For indeed, there is great power in prayer. But let me clarify what I mean. What I do not mean is what is often meant by prosperity gospel teachers 
that you can pray and if you have enough faith, the Lord is going to grant you health and wealth and he's going to prosper you in this life. Nowhere in the scriptures is that guaranteed. Nowhere in the scriptures is that promise made to God's people that this life will produce goodness and joy and rainbows and gumdrops. What we see instead is that in this life, those who trust in Christ often face hardship. They often face persecution. In fact, it is guaranteed that you will. Nothing more is guaranteed for us. So this idea promoted by gospel, prosperity gospel teachers is absolutely false. And it's not much different than this concept that we even see cropping up in the secular world known as manifesting. This new practice, I say it's new, it's not new, it's as old as, as time, where people believe that they can just, just manifest things into reality. They can speak to the universe and somehow things will come to pass. They will have money, they will have beauty, they will have whatever it is that they are seeking to manifest. manifest. It's a bunch of hogwash. It's a bunch of nonsense. But it's nonsense that has even infiltrated many churches by way of prosperity teaching. This passage gives us a clear picture as to what prayer is and what it is not. Prayer does not work as some sort of magic bullet that we put in the right, uh, the right numbers with the right amount of faith and we'll get whatever it is that we want and whatever it is that we desire. The Lord always hears the prayers of his children, but that does not mean that he always gives us what we ask for or what we desire, whether we have enough faith or not. Consider that the, first, that the church undoubtedly prayed for James. Do we really think that they would have spent all this time praying for Peter and not a word was spoken to the Lord about James? The church undoubtedly was in prayer for James as he had been taken, as he had been taken to go and, and, and be beheaded. And yet, did the Lord see fit to free James? No, he did not. As we've already established in his sovereignty and his providence, he chose to let James be martyred. Was it that the church didn't have enough faith then, but they had more now? Nope. It was that the Lord in his sovereignty chose to act in that situation. Then notice the reaction of the church when their petitions for Peter were granted. If the church were, were actually under this, this impression that whatever it is that they prayed for would be granted to them, if they just had enough people, if they just had enough faith, that whatever it is would be granted to them, then wouldn't we think that they wouldn't be surprised to see Peter? But rather what we see, that they were praying for Peter, pleading for the Lord to intercede, and when the Lord interceded, and Peter, the answer to their prayer, showed up on their doorstep, they were shocked. They were blown away. They said, that can't be. It must be his angel. They didn't believe it. It's clear that they were not expecting Peter to be freed, though they were praying, though they were interceding for him. In fact, it seems that Herod had greater expectations of Peter being freed than they did. That's why he put 16 guards on him. We are so often, I think, as, as Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, foolish and slow of heart to believe. Even the early church was, weren't they? They prayed that the Lord would intercede, but didn't they struggle in their belief? Didn't they waver in their confidence that the Lord would actually save Peter? I think that should give us a little bit of hope, right? 
that even this group, this early church, as they prayed fervently to the Lord, even as there was doubt in their midst, that didn't stop the Lord from working. Their doubt, their lack of faith didn't prevent God's power from going forth. That's the good news. The good news is that power is not to be found. The power to be found in prayer is not located in us or in the amount of faith that we are able to exercise by our will. It is located in the object of our faith. That's where the power is. It's located, it's found in Jesus. Prayer serves for us as a conduit to that power, not as the power itself. Our faith is a conduit to that power. It is not the power itself, contrary to what many would have the church believe. For if we're honest with ourselves, don't we all waver in our confidence? Don't we all waver in our faith, waver in our belief? Like the man when he spoke to Jesus said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We all waver, we all fail, we all, we all find it difficult to trust in Christ, but his power is there nonetheless. Never should we let that cause us to waver in our commitment to prayer. Never should we let that waver in our commitment to bringing our petitions to the Lord in prayer. Where did the calluses form on the church in Acts? I would argue, as we see from this passage, that the calluses formed on their knees. That the church in Acts were so committed to prayer that if spiritual calluses were to be forming anywhere, it would be forming on their knees. As the church faced persecution and a hardship, the, ro- the road was difficult, but that drove them not to turn from Christ, but rather it drove them to turn to him in prayer. And they did so immediately, they did so frequently, and they did so fervently to where if we were to see calluses anywhere on the early church that's where it would have been it would have been on their knees as things got difficult that is how they responded in power by prayer luther said one time he prayed regularly for an hour every day except when he experienced a particularly busy day then he prayed for two hours Luther understands the need that we have as believers to be in prayer. I think he certainly understood it as the early church did much better than we do today. You see, when we face difficulties in this life as Christians, when we feel the culture or the society or the world mistreating us, where do callous develop on us? Do we develop callous on our knees because we are immediately driven to fervent prayer to the Lord? Or do we develop calluses on our hearts, becoming bitter, becoming angry, feeling indignant and as though we are being treated unjustly by the world around us? Indeed, to be a believer is to invite injustice. It is to invite persecution. We have all the reason in the world to look at what's going on in the world around us, to look at how Christians are being treated by by governments and say, that's not fair. How dare they? Governments stink. And to harden our hearts, to harden ourselves both to the, the leaders that we have, but even to the world around us. And I would argue that a heart that has grown hard and callous to the world is one that has often, if not always, grown hard and callous toward the gospel.
Because indeed, if we understand the gospel truly and rightly, rightly, won't we understand that whatever it is that we see, the wickedness that we see coming out of the world, is that not the same evil, the same wickedness, the same sin found in us? That we played no role in overcoming? Again, Luther said, the only contribution I made to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. When we understand the gospel truly and rightly, then we will understand and our hearts will be softened to the world around us. Even as we recognize that it is evil, even as we recognize that in many ways the culture is against us and is for our harm, not our good. Church family, I would encourage us as we face this kind of hardship, as we face persecution in the world, as we face a culture that is not moving to more of a Christian position, but less of one, that we be cautious, that calluses don't begin to develop on our hearts, that we don't become hard-hearted, but rather, and indeed as an antidote, that we would develop the calluses on our knees, that we'd go to the Lord in prayer, accessing the power that is available for us, for if many of us were honest, we would say this week, we barely access that power that is freely available to us in Christ Jesus. That we can come into the very presence of God and we don't so often. Let us build the calluses on our knees, praying, living in the power that the Lord has granted us. Let us guard against the temptation to harden our hearts to the world and to the gospel. And you want to know something else about calluses. Calluses, while they, while they develop and, and sometimes develop after blisters and develop through repetition, they also serve as a sort of protective layer, don't they? That as you develop calluses on your hand, you find that whatever these jobs are that you're doing to cause the calluses, they begin to become easier because your hands get tougher, because your elbows get tougher, because your knees get tougher. Calluses serve in a protective manner too, don't they? I would argue, church family, that the reason Peter, as he was there in prison, chained to, do, to two guards, was able to so peacefully and calmly and contently sleep, sleep so deep that the angel had to bust him in his ribs to get him up, was because he had firmly and effectively developed those calluses in prayer. Paul says in the letter to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to the Lord. We see then that prayer serves for us as an antidote to anxiety, as an antidote to fear. So that the more we develop these calluses, the more we will trust in our Lord and in our Savior. The more we will see anxiety removed, the more we will see fears removed, and the more we will be deepened in our confidence in Christ. Let us remember this, church family. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let us commit ourselves to developing the calluses on our knees rather than on our hearts. Let's pray.